This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hey everyone, uh, welcome back to a brand new episode of Nutshell Politics. My name is Dr. Justin Kinney and I will be your charming host this week. Now, uh, we are back after a little bit of a hiatus. This is now my third episode back and I have a really interesting topic on tap for you guys. Uh, We're going to be talking about the Middle East, which is an area of interest to me. But in particular, we're going to go back in history a little bit and talk about... Uh, how the Middle East actually got the borders that it does today, uh, because we're seeing a lot of violence and strife and uh, conflict pop up among countries over there, not, not only just with Israel and Arab countries, but even between various Arab countries. And this has been going on for a long time. And there's a lot of reasons for that, uh, from religious and ideological uh, to historical. But we're going to focus on kind of the geographical argument for why some of these countries really don't get along, uh, but really just kind of talk about the history of, of how these countries came to be. And we're going to talk about it in two parts. I'm going to talk about it. Uh, we're going to talk about the Arab world for the first part, because that's most of the Middle East. But then we're going to talk uh, after the commercial break about Israel, because they were formed very differently than the rest of the Middle East. And so we'll talk about how they got their founding and some of the history there as well. Uh, but before we get into that, just want to remind you guys, uh, you can always find me online and social media. I'm on Facebook and Twitter. On Twitter, my handle is Justin R underscore Kenny. You can find me, hit that follow button there. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook under J. Robert Kenny. It's the name I write fiction novels under. I am a, an author on the side and I write mystery novels. Uh, so you can go ahead and check out my Facebook page and you can contact me at either one of those places as well. All right, so let's go ahead and dive into this week's topic. Now, as I mentioned, this topic does tie into some current events that we see going on today, and where appropriate, I will mention them. But by and large, this week, we're really going to just kind of focus on the history and just real, real educational, just kind of hit the big key points of how we got the Middle East that we see today. Uh, and most of this actually goes back to World War One. Now, obviously, these countries and the people in these regions have histories that go back millennia. Uh, it's one of the oldest communities of people in the world. And there's lots of different tribes and, and cultures and communities that go back long, long before actually most of the world. We think of that kind of region as the cradle of civilization. So the history there is just incredible. And uh, maybe at some point we can talk about individual groups and things in that region. I know we've done that in the past with a group here or there. Uh, but in terms of the countries that we know of them as today, most of them, their history goes back to World War One, And after World War One ended, there were two prime ministers in Europe that kind of got together to talk about how they wanted to divide up the Middle East. And that was the prime minister of France and the prime minister of Great Britain. Now, you're asking, why are they the ones in charge of doing this? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And that's because in World War One, and actually pre-World War One, most of the Middle East was part of what, what's called the Ottoman Empire. 
that the Ottoman Empire was actually one of the largest empires the world has ever seen. Uh, it spanned uh, quite large territory going into Europe, uh, even as well into Asia, North Africa. They were a very, very large empire. And they had been on the decline for some time, for near, nearly a century. They'd been losing territory steadily uh, in the, from their gigantic peak. Uh, it's about a century or so before that. World War I comes along. The Ottomans are on the losing side of this war. Uh, the Ottomans and actually the Turks as well had supported Germany during the war. And so when Germany falls in World War I, there's something called the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which comes about. And this is the agreement that... France and Great Britain, and actually to a smaller or lesser extent, Russia joins in on this as well. They're a minor party to the agreement, but pretty much left the dealings of how to handle the Middle East up to France and Great Britain, uh, and how they were going to handle this kind of former Ottoman Empire, how they were going to split it up into various countries. And these two countries, and as I said, to a lesser extent, Russia, divided up and defined their various spheres of influence and control across the Middle Eastern region. Uh, just to start with Russia, as I said, they have a very small portion, but they kind of had Istanbul uh, in Turkey, uh, the Turkish Straits in, in Armenia were left to them. Then you had France, which had kind of the northern portion of the Middle East, and that would be what we think of today as uh, northern Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, also little bits of southeast Turkey. And then the British had the southern portion of the, of the Middle East, and this was pretty much from the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River, uh, including Jordan, southern Iraq, and kind of the Palestinian territories at this time. And remember, World War I, Israel doesn't exist yet. That was all the Palestinian territories at that point in time. Now, this led to what was called Mandate Palestine, which was a territory controlled by the British, but was essentially kind of today's Israel and Jordan combined together. And that was what was called at the time the Mandate Palestine. We'll get to this kind of later in a bit, but that area ends up being divided. The Palestinians get Jordan and then the Israelis end up getting Israel. But we'll talk about that after the commercial break. So that's how the, the general region was split up. So you have the, the British in the south, the French in the north, and the Russia, Russia has a few small territories in the very far north. And so each country, then each nation state, basically was allowed to determine the boundaries within their area. Now, this led to a handful of problems. The primary one of which is that the allied countries, the allies, had promised the Arab world maybe 10 years before, early, earlier that decade at least, that if they had helped the cause by rebelling against the Ottoman Empire, so these are the, the local Arabs rebelling against the Ottomans, if they did that, and, and many of them did, they would be granted independence. But the colonial powers of Great Britain and France in particular backed off of that a little bit and decided they wanted to maintain control over these regions. And so the, these colonial powers exerted more and more influence in this area over the next couple decades. And so this led to, as you would expect, increased opposition to their rule. And the objectives slowly changed in the region to, or sorry, from kind of creating stable government to let's kick out the colonialists. And so they had kind of a mindset shift among the local people that shifted away from we need to work on building a stable government and more about getting rid of Great Britain and France. And so because of this, certain subgroups within these Arab populations decided to take advantage of this and kind of rose to power among their respective populations. And these would be military regimes. So those who were much more willing to fight and militarize 
were the ones who were granted power in these regions. Uh, and so these military regimes across the whole Middle East, both in the British and the French territories in particular, although a little bit in the Russians as well, started to rise up. That's problem number one. Problem number two is that even though these colonial powers were in control, they did want to still divide up the countries to an extent. And so they tended to just kind of, well, let me back up. They didn't really pay a whole lot of attention at the time to actual ethnic, religious, tribal distinctions on the ground. Uh, and, where, and when they did pay attention to them, oftentimes they would split them intentionally. And so you had this kind of tendency to just draw in very straight lines. They just kind of chopped it up very straight. That's actually why you see so many countries in the Middle East that have very straight borders that don't really follow local uh, geography, for instance. Um, And so you have these new borders being drawn, just kind of hacked out very straight lines, not corresponding to actual people on the ground. And you get a lot of people groups that get split across borders. Just as some examples, you had the Kurds, which we've actually talked about here on the podcast. I did a whole episode on them a while back. They got split across four states, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and Syria. Uh, You had the Shia Muslims who were split across Iraq, Kuwait, Bahrain, and bits of Saudi Arabia. You had the Alawites, which were in northern Lebanon, Syria, southwest Turkey. The Druze, or the Druzi, parts of Israel, Lebanon, and Syria today. Uh, you, then, you, of course, you had the Assyrians, the Yazidis, the Chaldeans, the, the Turkmen, the Circassians. All of these groups get split across different country boundaries. And what this often led to, then, were minority groups getting power in regions where they wouldn't normally have had that type of power. And this trickles down a little bit and leads to actually increased brutality in the regions because you see a push across the entire Arab world to unite the Arab world against the colonialists and gain kind of world influence. And frequently this was done by trying to suppress any differences in, again, ethnic, religious, tribal differences. And the way that a lot of these military regimes, remember I mentioned they they came to power. So you have military regimes coming to power. You have groups being split so that minority groups are often in power. And this push to unite the Arab world and gain kind of global influence. And so the way a lot of people did this, a lot of leaders, was through violence. Examples, Saddam Hussein, uh, Muammar Gaddafi, etc. Dictators who are of minority groups often in power, trying to suppress local differences in order to gain power. And this actually did work temporarily. But eventually, those differences kind of rose up again. Because at its core, the Arab world, especially since World War I, even before that too, we won't get into that history, that's totally different. But especially since World War I and these divides, the Arab world has often struggled with identity. They're torn between kind of this ethnic sectarianism religious differences, nationality, and there's a lot of identity crisis, I would say crisis probably is, is too strong of a word, but a lot of identity struggles across the Arab world. Do I belong to this religion at first? Do I belong to my nationality, to my ethnic group? Uh, and this is very difficult because those different groups all get split across national borders. So as the population of the region becomes younger and younger over the last several decades, there was a rise in this kind of generation that saw problems that they didn't contribute to, 
problems from their past that were still they were still suffering from today. And this actually is part of what ultimately boiled over into the Arab Spring in 2011. So this was something you know, going back to World War One that kind of has trickled down, trickled down, and then kind of started to rise up and eventually boiled over even in the 21st century. And so this means that in the modern Middle East that we tend to think of them, there are really only four states that have their own shared ethnicity, language, and religion for the most part. Obviously, they all have minority groups, but for the most part, there are only four states that can claim a shared ethnicity, language, and religion, and all the rest are completely uh, scattered and divided. And those four countries are Israel, we'll talk about them after the break, Turkey, Iran, and Saudi Arabia. And if you think about it, those are the four countries that we tend to think of as the most powerful countries in the Middle East. Saudi Arabia being very, very powerful. Iran being very powerful, pushing for nuclear power now. Turkey, which has been pushing for EU membership for a while. And of course, Israel. Now, there are other countries that have their various strengths. Obviously, Iraq had been powerful for a while under Saddam Hussein. Not so much anymore. You know, Jordan has its little little uh, realm. You have the UAE, which has a little bit as well. But, but for the most part, you see those four countries that have shared identity, ethnicity, religion, and language, are the four primary powers of the Middle East. And I will add, though, too, these aren't particularly pure. Just as some examples for that, Turkey, for instance, has this fairly ethnic uh, homogeneity, but that completely ignores the fact that there's 15 million, give or take, uh, in their Kurdish minority. And that was only because they had massacred you know, one and a half million Armenians at one point, and they kicked out about a million and a half Greeks at one point um, in the aftermath of World War One. So they kind of forced their ethnic homogeneity. Other examples, uh, Arabs in Israel, that constitute about 20% of the Jewish state's population. Uh, Iran, the, the name Iran, that doesn't even really exist in history. It's a modern term. Uh, there's actually no word in, in Arabic, really, for the word Arabia, like Saudi Arabia. That's, that's a, a modern term as well. So even though these four countries have shared identity, even they have struggled at times with, with that um, identity. Now, let's take a big step back here and go back to that Sykes-Picot agreement uh, that allowed Britain and France to split up the Middle East. This is something, this is something I, I doubt most people have ever heard of, but that doesn't mean it's not important. And we know it's really important and even cited in modern times because ISIS, the, the famous terrorist group, the infamous terrorist group in al-Baghdadi, who was their leader, they openly talk about the Sykes-Picot Agreement, citing it by name many, many times in their documentation and some of their speeches talking about how much they hate it and how much they want to reverse its effects, uh, how much they want to end that agreement that split up the boundaries and, and create their own new boundaries. So while this ancient agreement, uh, ancient, probably too strong a word, 80-year-old uh, agreement, 100-year-old agreement now, um, has been cited multiple times by a modern terrorist group. So even though people don't often even have heard about this, this agreement, it still has ramifications carrying through to today. And so we have groups like ISIS and some other minority uh, separatist type groups wanting to redraw borders. But there have been some problems with this. We've actually seen groups try to do this. This is actually why the country of Kosovo, uh, if you guys remember that big conflict, Kosovo is actually still unrecognized by many other states, uh, including many major first world countries 
because they may have their own secessionist movements. Spain doesn't recognize Kosovo, China, Russia. They have their own secessionist movements within their countries, and they, they fear that recognizing Kosovo, which was a secessionist movement to, to redraw their own boundaries, might undermine the authority uh, of their governments in their states. And that's because altering borders at this point in time is frequently seen as violating the sanctity of sovereignty. Uh, now, if you go back throughout history of the world, altering borders happened a lot, right? Through war, conflict mainly, but through other things as well. But really, there have been very few instances of that today. We don't really see territory changing hands very much from, from like between country and country like we did in the past. You just don't see that because it's seen today as violating the sanctity of sovereignty, which was really instilled as an important concept. Uh, actually, it's a major concept in international relations in general. And there's a lot of people who are worried today that, that altering borders will set a very dangerous precedent that may carry forward um, into future conflicts as well. And this, this issue of sovereignty has been really hard, or mainlined, or mainstreamed, hardlined, mix those two words, hardlined and mainstreamed into kind of modern parlance, especially through the UN and groups like that. And so even though there are these minority groups pushing for altering borders, there's this heavy, heavy pushback, I guess you would say. Now, all of what I've been talking about, you might say, well, that looks really bad for France and Great Britain, right? You know, they should have paid more attention to these things. Um, and there's a couple of things in there that I would certainly agree with. I mean, in some of the ways they drew up borders were intentionally designed to divide groups to make it harder for them to rise up against the colonial masters. Like, right, you, you can understand some of that frustration. However, it's really difficult to know what could have been done better than how they handled it. And I say that... Because when you look at the other alternatives that were, that were posed at the time, right? So, for instance, one of them would have been one just create one large Arab state in the Middle East. That would have been really tricky because that encompasses a large chunk of, of territory, including you know countries like Egypt in in Africa, uh, to Turkey, which is considered part of Europe by a lot of people, all the way to. Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Syria, you have all these countries that would want to rule because of their ethnic, religious, cultural differences. And then on top of that too, there are tons of minority groups to deal with. The Shias, the Kurds, uh, the, the Arab Christians in the area might have uh, played a role in that. And so one large Arab state would have been plagued with so many problems of leadership. You probably would have had all kinds of conflicts anyway turning into multiple upon multiple civil wars that would have ended up dividing territory pretty brutally and bloody as and bloodily bloodily I don't know if bloodily is a word uh, but in a very bloody fashion so that may not have been a great option either so the option B you know, maybe create lots of little tribal states you know, give every tribe and every people group its own state problem is a lot of these ethnic tribal groups, would probably have seen sectarian conflicts anyway because there are many areas in the Middle East that are sacred to multiple uh, faiths or multiple branches of faith. And we see this already uh, with different sites that are sacred to various sects of Islam. We see this a lot, actually. And so you probably would not be peaceful in that sense either. All these little tribal states would have had a hard time uh, creating much in the way of global influence as well, which is something the Arab world has been pushing for for a long time. And you would have had you would have seen a lot of sectarian conflicts between these individual states as they fought over sacred 
uh, sacred areas and cultural issues. All right, so then option C, let the regions sort out their own borders. This is looked upon by many people in the, um, let's say in modern international relations is probably the best way they could have gone about it. But even that was no guarantee of peace. You know, the Balkans drew up their own borders, but they kept fighting all the way up until the 1990s. So they fought forever, even though they drew their own borders. And you can even look at, at Europe today. Uh, Europe, we consider them as being very peaceful today, you know, being part of the EU and working together on things. But even Europe's borders are the results of centuries upon centuries of fighting. So leaving people groups to their own devices to sort out their own borders is certainly no guarantee of peace and might have resulted in uh, centuries of fighting and bloody wars anyway. So when you look at this, you know, those four options, right? So one big state, lots of little tiny tribal states, let them sort out their own borders or what Britain and France did. It's a lot easier to understand why they made that decision that they did, despite many of the problems that it seems to have um, reaped down the road. As I said, you know, it's difficult to really know what could have been done better. And looking back, obviously, your vision is, is much better. You know, they say hindsight is twenty twenty. Definitely understand all of that. But especially in the moment, they didn't have a ton of great options for how to divide up the Ottoman Empire that would have resulted in peace right away. They all probably would have resulted in lots of bloody conflict uh, and sectarian issues that we see still today. All right, we're going to go ahead and take a little bit of a commercial break, uh, give my voice a break, and then we'll jump back on the other side to talk about Israel because the Israeli borders are very, very different in terms of their origin and their development over time uh, to what we think of them today than the rest of the Middle East. And so we'll talk about that on the other side of the commercial break. So just hang with me and I'll be back with you guys in just a minute. All right. Uh, thanks so much for sticking with me through that short commercial break. We are back and we're just going to jump right back into this week's topic on Middle Eastern borders. Now, as I mentioned before the break, uh, the Middle East can kind of be split in terms of its historical borders into two chunks. You have the Arab Middle East and most of the country borders there. And then you have Israel, which actually was founded very differently. It's a unique country in the world. Actually, the way it was founded is, is unique globally, not just in the Middle East. Uh, and so I thought for the rest of the episode, we could kind of focus on this one country and uh, maybe some insight into modern events taking place between Israel and uh, many of the Middle Eastern countries. All right, so let's... Um, jump way, way back in time, early, early history of Israel. The land in question was predominantly Jewish until about the third century. And then that was about when the Roman Empire kind of really took over. Now, we saw the Romans in, in that area long before that, but the Roman Empire at this time had converted to Christianity. And so it was about the third century that Christianity kind of took over in the region, and then they stayed predominantly more or less Christian until about the seventh century, when there was a conquest and they became uh, a predominantly Muslim territory. And so, within those first seven centuries, give or take, uh, we saw this this land occupied predominantly by Jews, then by Christians, and then by Muslims. Now, I'm glossing over, obviously, centuries worth of history here, but to get to modern-day borders, we're going to jump forward to the late 19th century, so to be 1800s. And we saw a rise in the territory here in Jewish nationalism. 
uh, for a variety of reasons that were happening. A lot of Jews who still lived in the area were kind of rediscovering their heritage and wanting to reclaim some of that. Um, as I said, there was a rise in kind of nationalistic sentiments among those smaller populations in the area. And by the time World War I rolls around and Mandate Palestine was formed, there's about a 30-year period of control here, this nationalistic bent of the local uh, Jewish community spiked even further. And post-World War I and during this Mandate Palestine era, there was a rise in Jewish immigration to the region. Now, this actually led to some conflict. There were occasional bouts of violence that would break out, um, not only between the Jews and some of the others in the area, but also frequently against uh, the British. And there was some guerrilla fighting against the British in the area. There was even a, a, a what you call it, like a Zionist paramilitary or paramilitary organization called the Ergun. That's I-R-G-U-N. Uh, they were essentially guerrilla fighters who fought against the British, trying to kick the British out of the area. But by and large, this move of Jewish immigration to the area after World War I was, we're going to call them relatively peaceful. As I said, occasional bouts of violence, occasional guerrilla fighting, but for the most part, both Jews and Arabs sought better living conditions in this area than most of the rest of the Middle East. And so we continue to see through general peace and a rise in even further Jewish immigration, by the end of World War II, about a third of the population of the area was Jewish. So it was a pretty heavy Jewish population here going into the 40s. Now, even post-World War I, Britain was very hesitant to do much with this, this region um, because they had some pretty big political and economic interests in the Arab world, and they weren't really interested in trying to upset that balance. But in the 1920s, the, the Mandate Palestine gets split. And the, what, they, what they call the Transjordan area was given to uh, the Saudi king's brother. And the Golan Heights area was given to the French and, and what was called the Syrian Mandate. And so the, this Palestinian Arab territory ends up getting kind of split up and divided. But when you get into the 40s, Great Britain, as I said, trying not to upset the balance. They're starting to lose interest in the, in the area and having control. And by 47 or 48, uh, Great Britain was already starting to withdraw from the area as that British mandate on the area was terminated. That makes sense when you think about what I said before is that after World War I, which ended in the late teens, uh, sorry, the 19 teens, Mandate Palestine was formed. And as part of that formation, they basically signed an agreement saying there would be a 30-year period of control after which the British, the British would either renegotiate or leave. Um, and so by the 47-48, Great Britain is already starting to withdraw from the area as that 30-year mandate is expiring. All right, so that gets us up to 1947. So in 1947... British are starting to leave the area. You have a rise in Jewish population. And so the United Nations established what was called the UN Special Committee on Palestine because they wanted to examine this issue further. And eventually, uh, after a lot of discussion, they recommended that this portion, this mandate Palestine, be divided into two states, a Jewish state and an Arab state, uh, based primarily on population concentrations of the, the two groups there. This was voted on and it was accepted in November of 1947. It's called the Resolution 181. And this also then allowed for 
Jewish migration back to the area in the following year. Now, the Jewish population accepted this. They liked this, establishing a, a home country for them. The Arabs did not. But interestingly, during this time, uh, and this is, this is what people get very confused about even today, when you talk about the Special Committee on Palestine, we tend to think of Palestine as meaning the Arabs, right? The Palestinians. But during this time, especially in the 40s, Palestinians was a much more general term for people who lived in the area. It meant both Jews and Arabs. Uh, Jews were actually considered to be Palestinians in the 1940s. Uh, and when we even think about it in, in kind of a larger context, you know, the country today of Jordan is culturally, ethic, ethnically, historically, and religiously identical, essentially, to today's Palestinians. Uh, Jordan was part of this original Palestine under British mandate. And so when we think about today's Palestinians, they're essentially the exact same people group as Jordan. And so when this vote happened on Palestine, this sparked a lot of discontent across the region and actually escalated into a, a little bit of a civil war between the Jewish community and the Arab community in this Palestinian area, which again, includes Jews and Arabs. This results, the civil war results in a lot of uh, Arabs leaving the area. Right at about the same time, Jews from around the world are starting to move into the area. And so this civil war lasted, I think it was like about five months, and we saw a massive exodus of Arabs from the area and a massive influx of Jews from the various Arab states in the area into this territory. Uh, but this is what's created the kind of cultural and religious divide that we see today as the two sides, I don't say voluntarily split because it took a bloody conflict to do it, but they, they um, intentionally, Arabs left the area because the civil war and Jews moved into the area because of it. All right, so that gets us through 47. In May of 1948, David Ben-Gurion, he formally proclaims the establishment of the state of Israel in this territory that the UN agreed upon to give them, to give the, the, the Jewish community. Several countries immediately recognized it, uh, including the United States, as well as the Soviet Union. Uh, and this became the Israeli Declaration of Independence, essentially, uh, May 14th, 1948. This declaration, though, almost leads just about directly into the 1948 Arab-Israel War, which was a nine to 10 month conflict where several Arab countries Egypt, uh, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, the country we now know of as Jordan, although at the time it was called Transjordan, they all banded together and marched into the area and attacked Israel forces and settlements as a result of this Declaration of Independence. At first, these Arab countries actually gained a fair amount of territory, but eventually the tide kind of flipped and Israel ended up gaining land. By the end of the year, ceasefires had arranged. There was this huge exodus, uh, even more so, of Arabs from the territory. Somewhere in the neighborhood of about half a, a million people. Some estimates are as high as 700 to 800,000 Arabs left. And there's, there's a lot of misconceptions about this exodus. At the time, these people were actually told by the Arab forces, by these countries, Egypt, Iraq, Syria, etc. They told them, the Arab civilians in the area, they told them to leave and promised that they could return when the Jews were defeated. The problem is, eventually the Jews win the war, and Israel wins the war, and they maintain all of the territory that was given to it by the UN resolution in, 48, in 47, sorry, 
Plus, they get about 60% of the, the territory of the proposed Arab state from the UN resolution as a result of the war. So they gain a fair amount of territory during this time period. Uh, now, also, uh, during this time period, Jordan tries to annex the West Bank, and Egypt moves in and occupies Gaza. So that, that's where we are in the late 40s. After these ceasefires, Israel gets admitted to the UN as a country, and they become much more widely recognized around the world. And because of this, now they have a formal recognized state. We see about 700,000 Jews immigrate to Israel from around the world. All right, so that's where we are. When, we talk, when people talk about the, the the 48 borders, or they talk about the pre-48 borders. In 1967, territory changes again. You have what's called the Six-Day War. And there's a, I'm not going to get into the details of the Six-Day War, but essentially uh, there are several countries, including Egypt, Jordan, and Syria, who essentially try to attack Israel. Uh, in particular, Egypt, which has a very powerful air force at the time, was leading a lot of this charge, and they are amassing forces along the Israeli border. Israel knows they can be attacked. And so Israel launches what's called a first strike attack, takes out the Egyptian Air Force, uh, defeats Egypt, defeats Jordan, defeats Syria, and Israel just wipes them out. I mean, by like a tw I mean the casual account was by like a 20 to 1 margin. Uh, Israel defeats all of these uh, Arab countries that surround them, and, and they ended up getting a lot more land in, in the process, including getting the West Bank, the Golan Heights, Gaza. They actually control the entire Sinai Peninsula, essentially tripling their territory in 67. Now, eventually, uh, they do agree to, uh, or should I say they offered, to return the Sinai Peninsula to Egypt. Uh, this takes a, a long time to happen, but eventually they do give the, the peninsula back to Egypt, uh, completing their withdrawal in 1982. Uh, Jordan and Egypt, in, in kind of return, withdraw their claims to the West Bank and Gaza, which they had taken in the 48 war and israel tries to make an, an offer to syria in in 67 you know, right after this war uh to return the golan heights but syria rejects it long story here i'm not going to get into a lot of details of it but there's a another war in 73 with syria where syria tries to recapture the heights they fail israel offers to return part of the territory they've actually offered many times to exchange the golan heights uh, in exchange for a promise of peace with Syria, Syria always says no. Um, they, so they did this m many times over the years. They did 67 and 73 and several other times. Eventually in 2010, so just not that long ago, 10 years, uh, Israel basically tells Syria, just forget it. We're not going to give you this territory back. We've tried many times in the past. You keep saying no. Um, all we're asking for is peace in return. You keep saying no. It's, it's done. So 2010, they say they're going to stop doing this. Now, that is essentially where we are today. So this territory, after getting giving uh, the Sinai Peninsula back to Egypt in 82, the territory that we think of Israel today is essentially what it was after after the 67 war. They, they have the West Bank, Golan Heights, Gaza. And in fact, if you think about it, the West Bank and Gaza especially are two highly contentious areas today because there are still a lot of Palestinians living in those two areas which makes a lot of sense when you go back to the time period between 48 and 67 when uh, Jordan had annexed the West Bank and Egypt had occupied Gaza after that 48 war. And so there's a lot of Palestinians and Arabs living in those two areas, but Israel controls them today because of the 67 war. And then uh, obviously the Golan Heights is a very strategically uh, important area, kind of right up on the, the northern border of Israel. 
it's an important territory. The Golan Heights uh, strategically, because as you can kind of predict from the name Heights, it's a very high area. So it allows you to see enemy forces coming. Uh, so they have been very hesitant to give it back without that promise of peace from Syria, um, which is why they still control it today. But it's also why other countries like, say, Syria want it, uh, because it would give them strategic advantage to then attack Israel in the future. But essentially, that's where we are today with, with Israel. Moving, we're just going to spend just five minutes kind of talking about how this is affecting things today. When people talk about there being you know, a two-state solution, one-state solution with, with Israel and the what we call today the Palestinian territories, although, again, understanding that Palestinian means something different today than it did in the past. So looking at how that plays out today, when people talk about, say, a one-state solution, they're talking about turning it into either all Israel, including the Palestinian territories, West Bank, Gaza, etc., all, all one country, turning it into two countries and trying to give the Palestinian people living in those territories their own country somehow, trying to figure out how to do that. Or some countries have been pushing for, like Syria for many years, take out Israel entirely and either give, again, the one state to the Palestinians, to the Arabs, which, which would be a minority in most of that country at that time, or you know, wipe wipe them out and split up the territory among the surrounding countries like Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, etc. So that's playing out today. However, as we've noticed in a couple recent peace deals, several Arab countries have started to normalize their relationships with Israel. As I mentioned uh, in the last episode, you know, Egypt actually did this a long time ago. They were the you know the first one to do so. Uh, and then you have Jordan, which is a border country on the eastern side of Israel, has normalized their relations. And then we have several countries like the UAE, Bahrain, uh, Kosovo, as I mentioned, that, that was a new one just recently. Other Arab countries in the region have started to normalize their relationships, which is cutting off some strategically important allies from countries that do not want peace with Israel, which would be some members of the, the territories including groups like Hamas or the PLO, countries like Syria and Lebanon on the northern borders, as well as many other countries, Iran in the Middle East. Iran is a big enemy of Israel right now. Uh, and they frequently will back other countries that are considered enemies as well. So you have a lot of countries who still to this day dispute these borders because they believe Israel uh, stole them essentially from the Palestinian people who were living there. They talk about the, the Palestinian or Arab exodus, but we also have uh, a lot of contentious debates about you know, whose territory it really does belong to. Because if you, you know, if you say, okay, Israel was created in 47 before that, you know, it was, it was kind of a British territory, the British mandate before that you had, you know, the Ottomans who, who ruled it. And that was a lot of, there were a lot of uh, ethnic Arabs and what you would consider maybe ethnic Palestinians in the area. Uh, then if you keep going back even further and you get in seventh century is when the Muslims uh, came through and conquered, conquered the area. Before that, it was a Christian community uh, under the Roman Empire. Before that, it was a Jewish community. So there's a lot of debate and who you believe has a right to that territory depends a lot on where you draw the line, historically speaking. But we're seeing kind of a trend in modern times towards recognizing Israel as a country that has a right to exist, people who have a right to peace and a right to exist, 
and more normal relations with the countries around them. Obviously, still very contentious. Uh, the, the city of Jerusalem is, is an area that we'll probably always see uh, fighting and conflict over because of its sacredness to three major world religions in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. All cite Jerusalem as being kind of a sacred city to their faith. Um, and so there will always be some of this conflict, but we do se- seem to see this trend going in that direction. Now, I'm not going to do a full episode on this because I just did one last week on the UAE, but we have other countries that have started to normalize their relations. Uh, last episode, I talked about how I thought this agreement with the UAE was going to be different than the ones with Jordan, Egypt, and may start a trend of dominoes falling. We have actually seen that. One I want to mention is Bahrain because I think that's probably the most intriguing of the bunch. A lot of people don't know much about Bahrain. That's totally fine. It's not a country that has a ton of global influence at the moment, but they're really important because of their relationship with Saudi Arabia. It is very, very unlikely that Bahrain would have signed any sort of agreement with Israel without Saudi Arabia behind the scenes telling them it's okay. And that, I think, is fascinating because Saudi Arabia would be the most, if, if they were to say, normalized relationships with Israel. And we've actually seen them moving that direction too in recent years, most re- most recently with allowing planes to fly over their uh, their territory from Israel. If Saudi Arabia did it, they would be the most powerful country to normalize that relationship. And it almost feels like Saudi Arabia is testing the waters here with Bahrain, uh, allowing Bahrain to, to do this that they would not have done without Saudi Arabia giving the okay on. That just feels like a small step that the Saudis are taking to, to kind of test the waters. They're dipping their toe in the water and seeing what the results are going to be. I suspect, assuming you know things don't blow up in their faces, they, they will be moving that direction before too long as well to normalize relations. Uh, Saudi Arabia is a country that I think recognizes the strategic and economic value of Israel, uh, as well as a, a powerful potential military ally against a country in, in Iran that both of them view as a major enemy. I've actually talked about this on the podcast as well, but the Saudi Arabian rivalry with with Iran has been growing in recent years and becoming more and more violent and more and more dangerous. And so seeing Israel as kind of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, we may be seeing Saudi Arabia and Israel growing closer together as as well. And I think the peace agreement with Bahrain is a step in that direction. All right, uh, we're going to go ahead and shut things down for this week. Um, I, I think that's just, I just wanted to give you guys a, a background on kind of the countries that we see in the Middle East, uh, how they came to be to their modern borders, maybe some background in some of the conflict that we see there. Obviously, there's a lot more complexity to it. And we can do this in more podcasts on the road, you know, culturally, religiously, etc. But the actual geographical boundaries that were drawn up have contributed in some way to some of the conflict as well. And I think that's an important uh, often overlooked element of this. And so I wanted to give some background on that. I hope that was interesting for you guys. Uh, if you're interested in continuing this conversation uh, with me, or you want me to cover other elements of this, say, you know, the religious side of this in a future episode, please just let me know. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, you can find me on social media. Again, my Twitter handle is Justin R underscore Kinney. And my Facebook handle is J Robert Kinney. Uh, Please find me, hit those follow buttons, the like buttons, and I would love to continue this conversation or any others with you, or if you just have suggestions or or requests for future episodes, I'd love to to hear from you guys and 
I'd be happy to put those episodes in the queue going forward. Now, if you're interested in supporting me, supporting this podcast in any way, uh, advertising on the podcast, anything along those lines, please you know go ahead and get in contact with me. Those two avenues are probably your best bet. I also do have a Patreon account online you can find under J. Robert Kinney, and uh, you can check that out as well. But with that, I think we are just about done for this week. So I will go ahead and close things out. I look forward to being with you guys next time. But until then, this is Nutshell Politics. My name is Dr. Justin Kinney, and I am out in three, two, one. 